0: In 1999, Star Wars creator George Lucas had a message for the world, one he wanted to express very clearly. During a press conference for Star Wars The Phantom Menace, the first film in his upcoming prequel trilogy, Lucas tempered his audience's expectations for the future of the franchise. He said, I will not do episodes 7, 8, and 9. In his eyes, the prequels were the end to his silver-screen Star Wars story. And to finalize his point and erase any speculation, he added that no one else would ever make the films either. This is it. This is all there is, he said. Thirteen years after that press conference, however, to the delight of fans of all ages, Lucas would break that promise. But it would take another company, a media mammoth, to continue Lucas's legacy. One that started with a mouse. Ten years ago, Disney and Lucas made a deal that, for better or for worse, ushered in a new era of Star Wars storytelling. This is the decade of Star Wars under Disney. This is the story behind the announcement that changed everything. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production.
1: Your host, David Quinn.
0: It's a trap! Yes, Master. Well, the, the more you tighten your grip, the more
1: star systems will slip through your fingers. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. The Force will be with you. Always.
0: Let me take you back to October 30th, 2012 for it is certainly a noteworthy day for Star Wars fans of all ages. The Walt Disney Company released a video in which CEO Bob Iger, dressed in an Oxford and darker cardigan, stood in front of a deep blue velvet curtain and made an announcement that
1: upended the media industry. Today, I am proud to announce the Walt Disney Company is acquiring Lucasfilm, the global entertainment company founded by George Lucas, and the home of the legendary Star Wars franchise. In addition to getting the rights to one of the greatest family franchises and epic stories of all time, Disney is also acquiring all of Lucasfilm's operating businesses, including Industrial Light & Magic and Skywalker Sound. George Lucas is a true visionary and an innovative epic storyteller who has defined modern filmmaking with unforgettable characters and amazing stories. The Star Wars universe now has more than 17,000 characters inhabiting several thousand planets and spanning 20,000 years. And this gives Disney infinite inspiration and opportunities to continue the epic Star Wars saga. Fans can expect a new feature film, Star Wars Episode VII, in theaters worldwide in 2015. And there will be more feature films, as well as consumer products, television projects, games, and theme park attractions. We're thrilled that George has entrusted the future of his extraordinary legacy to the Walt Disney Company and recognize what an honor it is. We truly understand the responsibility that comes with being the caretakers of such iconic characters that are beloved by hundreds of millions all over the world. Disney has a unique ability to grow strong brands and expand fantastic creative content as we've proven with our successful acquisitions of both Pixar and Marvel. And the addition of Lucasfilm will further our growth strategy and create even more opportunity for Disney to drive significant long-term value for our shareholders. George Lucas, the
0: creator of Star Wars and founder of Lucasfilm, appeared next against the same velvet curtain. However, the dichotomy between the two speakers was fascinating. Iger's presentation was rigid and wholly scripted. He ended it by emphasizing the deal's effect on the company's shareholders. And Lucas, always setting his own path, spoke freely and from the heart about the company and the franchise he cultivated.
2: I've been a big fan of Disney all my life, Uh, you know, from when I was born. Uh, first day at Disneyland, Uh, loved Disney movies, Uh, got very involved with Disney um, in the uh, 80s and uh, working in the parks, Uh, and I've always had a fondness for Disney. Um, At the same time, uh, as I've gone through my career, I realized at some point I needed to retire and I wanted to go on and do other things, Things in philanthropy and doing more experimental kind of films, but I couldn't really drag my company into that. And uh, I felt it was time for me to uh, start thinking about retiring, and I've been doing that for the last uh, four years. Uh, And one of the most important uh, shifts that I had was I found Kathy Kennedy, who I'd been working with for 40 years, uh, and asked her if she wanted to come and be a co-chairman with me and get ready to take over the company and take over the franchise and do everything. And once that piece was in place, I knew then I could step away and actually retire. Uh, The final block in that was to um, find a good solid home for the company. And um, the first place I thought was uh, Disney. Um, They're large enough and the match of what our two companies are is just perfect because we're like a mini Disney. We have the same kind of operations. We do the same kind of thing. And I've worked with Disney over the years, and I know how they operate. So it was a perfect match of two companies that are uh, constructed similarly, do the same kind of product. And um, I think uh, we'll, you know, it'll give me a chance to go off and explore my own interests at the same time feel completely confident that Disney... Uh, you know, will take good care of the franchise I've built. And um, at the same time, you know, for me, I look at it as uh, uh, I'm investing in Disney because that's my retirement fund. The future Star Wars films, uh, Kathy and I have been working on future Star Wars films. And uh, the main reason I brought Kathy on is rather than quit, I wanted to have it move forward, but I needed somebody I trusted who could take that franchise and make it work the way I intended it to. So once Kathy came on board, we started working with writers and started working uh on all the processes of doing the films. Um so we've you know got a plan for uh seven, eight, and nine, which are the is the end of the trilogy, and um other films also. So uh we have a you know a large uh, uh group of ideas and characters and books and all kinds of things we could go on making star wars for the next hundred years
0: the announcement was shocking but not totally surprising the skywalker saga in the era of star wars live-action films appeared to have reached its unfortunate end with 2005's prequel finale revenge of the sith lucas likely both spent and restless after completing another big screen trilogy sought out a different medium for his future stories. After a three-year hiatus, he introduced his new venture in 2008, titled The Clone Wars, with a feature-length film followed by a multi-season television series. In animated television, Lucas seemed to have found a vehicle that afforded him the ability to tell Star Wars stories where he was not hindered by the technological limits or inflated production budgets that burdened live-action films. The Clone Wars fanbase consisted of both children and adults, and its stories helped fill in the gap between the second and third prequel films. And during that time, Lucas had taken a Padawan of his own under his guidance, in Dave Filoni. And the two of them not only fleshed out the characters introduced in the prequels, but they opened the world of Star Wars in fresh and previously unexplored ways. There is a promotional Mailway poster from 1984 that uses a popular internal Kenner slogan, Star Wars is forever. But, even the most diehard fan had to face the fact that Lucas's involvement with the galaxy he created would be finite by two thousand and twelve. Lucas was sixty eight years old. For a creator and storyteller with his passion and curiosity, it didn't seem like he was ready to walk away from Star Wars just yet. But if he wanted to keep the franchise going, he was certainly at an age in which he needed to consider a contingency plan for his eventual absence. In Paul Duncan's book, The Star Wars Archives, 1999 2005, Lucas let us in on the reason he opted to end his involvement with Lucasfilm and its properties. He said, I'd still be working on episode 9. In 2012, I was 69. So the question was, am I going to keep doing this for the rest of my life? Do I want to go through this again? Finally, I decided I'd rather raise my daughter and enjoy life for a while. I could have not sold Lucasfilm and gotten somebody to run the productions, but that isn't retiring. On The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, I tried to stay out of the way, but I couldn't. I was there every day. Even though the people were friends of mine and they did great work, it wasn't the same as me doing it. It was like being once removed. I knew that probably wouldn't work again, that I'd be frustrated. I'm one of those micromanager guys, and I can't help it. And while he later admitted that parting with Star Wars was immensely painful, as he had spent 40 years of his life developing it, stepping down afforded him the opportunity to realize other life goals. No longer burdened by the demands of a massive franchise, he could devote more time to his family, and would finally tackle another dream, building a museum dedicated to the art of visual storytelling. Disney's connection to Star Wars began decades before the 2012 deal. The studio had created its own version of the sci-fi franchise in the form of its 1979 film, The Black Hole. However, the film fizzled at the box office, also collapsing plans to create a Black Hole-centered theme park attraction at Disneyland. And in the early 1980s, Disney's leadership asked Lucas to take the role once held by Walt Disney himself and to run the entire media company. Lucas declined, as his heart was firmly focused in pushing the creative and technological limits of filmmaking. After finishing the original Star Wars trilogy, Lucas partnered with Disney to create the Michael Jackson-led Captain EO attraction for the Disney parks. Around that time, Lucas had also toyed with the idea of licensing Lucasfilm properties like Star Wars and Indiana Jones for theme park attractions. Star Wars seemed to fit into Disney's plan perfectly, as the company aimed to make rides that would appeal to a younger generation of visitors. Star Tours, a flight simulator that took park-goers around the Star Wars galaxy, premiered in 1987 and was an instant success. The ride opened in Orlando's Hollywood Studios, Tokyo Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris over the next five years. And in 1997, Hollywood Studios became home to Star Wars Weekends, a series of weekend events over the course of a month that would offer panels with cast and crew members from the films, celebrity meet and greets, parades, and live shows. In 2011, Disney updated the Star Tours ride with Star Tours, The Adventure Continues. Advancements in computer-generated technology provided park attendees with a fresh take on a beloved attraction with further planets to explore, and the experience was randomized, propelling guests to ride again and again. Lucas had developed a relationship with Disney and its leadership team, forged by a creativity and a desire to produce immersive experiences that matched the filmmaker's vision for Star Wars. The Disney Imagineers proved they could continue the story of Star Wars in unique and fulfilling ways for its attendees and fans. And as Disney looked to the future, it set its sights not just on partnering with Lucasfilm, but on potentially acquiring Lucas's company one day. Under CEO Bob Iger, Disney strategized growing the company through a series of high-profile acquisitions. The first came in 2006, when Disney purchased the Pixar Animation Studio for $7.4 billion. The company then set its sights on two media behemoths, Marvel and Lucasfilm. Marvel became the priority, as Iger felt Disney had the best chance of landing the company. And with Marvel's vast array of characters and intellectual property, if handled correctly, the deal could net profits for Disney for decades. Lucasfilm seemed to be more of an improbability. After all, Lucas still owned and ran the company he created 30 years earlier. Yes, it's true, he was nearing the age where most people retire. But Iger knew Lucas was not like most people. And through a series like The Clone Wars, Lucas was still telling the stories he wanted to tell, reinventing the genre in the process. Disney acquired Marvel for $4 billion in 2009, but Lucasfilm remained on Disney's list as a potential target. In 2011, Apple CEO Steve Jobs knew of Disney's interest in Lucasfilm and told Iger to explore the possibility with Lucas about a future deal. Iger's moment came during a breakfast with Lucas as they celebrated the opening of the newly redesigned Star Tours attraction at the Disney parks. In Iger's memoir titled The Ride of a Lifetime, the former Disney CEO recounted how he pitched the idea to Lucas. He said... I don't want to be fatalistic, George, and please stop me if you would rather not have this conversation, but I think it's worth putting this on the table. What happens down the road? You don't have any heirs who are going to run the company for you. They may control it, but they're not going to run it. Shouldn't you determine who protects or carries on your legacy? Lucas confided in Iger that if he were to sell Lucasfilm he would want it to land under Disney's umbrella. But Lucas was conflicted about parting with his company. After all, he had spent almost his entire life creating the world and mythology of Star Wars. Iger respected Lucas and gave him both time and space to make his decision, with the knowledge that Disney had a good chance of owning it eventually. However, Lucas struggled with giving up creative control. But he had observed how Disney handled Marvel and Pixar in the months and years after purchasing them. And he noted how the company largely kept the original teams running them intact, and allowed them to operate with very little interference. At the end of 2011, Lucas reached out to Iger to discuss a possible deal. Lucas initially valued his company and the Star Wars franchise at what Disney paid to acquire Pixar. Around $7.5 billion. But Pixar not only had multiple profitable properties like Toy Story and The Incredibles, but also had a decade's worth of films in the pipeline, helmed by some of the top directors in animation. As Bloomberg Businessweek's Devin Leonard noted, Lucas's next moves were shrewd and calculated. In the months following the initial meeting with Iger, Lucas had revisited his plans for a third Star Wars trilogy. He likely did this for two reasons. To boost the value of the potential deal in the eyes of Disney, and to set the path for the future of the franchise, even if he would no longer be its leader and visionary. He was Star Wars' author and the films would continue to be told in his words through the scripts he would offer as part of the deal. Creative control was one of the biggest challenges during negotiations. If Disney was to purchase Star Wars, the company wanted to figure out a path for it, one that would not be impeded by the former owner. Concerning the drafts, Iger said, At some point in the process, George told me that he had completed outlines for three new movies. He agreed to send us three copies of the outlines. One for me, one for Executive Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary Alan Braverman, and one for Co-Chairman and Chief Creative Officer of Walt Disney Studios, Alan Horn, who had just been hired to run our studio. Alan Horn and I read George's outlines and decided we needed to buy them though we made it clear in the purchase agreement that we would not be contractually obligated to adhere to the plot lines he'd laid out. Iger may have believed the purchase agreement would temper Lucas's expectations concerning the direction for the new films. But would Lucas see it that way? Did he really understand what he would be sacrificing upon signing that deal? If George Lucas was going to relinquish creative control of Star Wars to Disney, he wanted to make sure Lucasfilm continued with a competent leader.
2: Obviously, I've been talking about retiring for several years now. I wanted to get into sort of another stage of life where I'm not in the film business anymore, and I don't have to run a corporation. And it occurred to me one day that the perfect person to take over the company was Kathy. It's just such a perfect fit. But I felt that I really wanted to put the company somewhere in a larger entity, which would protect it. Disney is a huge corporation. They have all kinds of capabilities and facilities, so that there's a lot of uh, strength that is gained by this.
0: In the late 1970s, Kathleen Kennedy was working in Los Angeles as an assistant to John Milius. Milius was the executive producer on Steven Spielberg's film, 1941. Spielberg, impressed with Kennedy, hired her to be his secretary. Kennedy stood out during the meetings in which Spielberg and his team worked on crafting their next script. As a secretary, her role was to take notes during the discussions, but she often interjected with ideas of her own, many of which helped to fix the pacing of the story and move it along in a more organic way. Spielberg trusted Kennedy and he trusted her enough to ask for her opinion on his latest script at the time, the Lawrence Kasdan penned Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders was the first film on which Kennedy worked with George Lucas. As their relationship developed, Kennedy produced some of the biggest blockbusters in the world during the 1980s and 1990s. Kennedy was responsible for films like 1982's E.T. the Extraterrestrial, 1984's The Color Purple, 1993's Jurassic Park, 1996's Twister, and 1999's The Sixth Sense. As an executive producer, she produced 1980's staples like Gremlins, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Goonies, as well as the Back to the Future and Indiana Jones trilogies. And heading into a new century, she added to her already impressive resume with 2001's Artificial Intelligence, 2003's Seabiscuit, 2005's Munich and War of the Worlds, 2008's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and 2012's Lincoln. Kennedy also co-founded the studio Amblin Entertainment with Spielberg in 1981, and the Kennedy-Marshall Company a decade later with her husband, Frank Marshall. To Lucas, Kennedy was the perfect choice, and maybe the only one he truly trusted to lead Lucasfilm. She had a proven track record of excellence over decades in the film industry, and had worked with some of the greatest filmmakers and visionaries. Kennedy had a reputation as one of the most respected producers. Above all, Lucas considered her a friend. Before entering into the negotiations for the deal... Lucas told Kennedy about his plans to sell Lucasfilm and invited her to step into the role as Lucasfilm's president for the new era under Disney. When asked about the demands of this sudden and new opportunity, Kennedy candidly said, It's a lot on my plate, but it's been fantastic. I consider it such an honor that George came to me after all these years and asked me if I would take over the company and ensure that his legacy continued. There's going to be a lot that looks really fun and interesting, and it will still utilize many of the skills that I use as a producer. I don't envision that a lot will change that dramatically. Many of the movies that I did with Steven over the years involved carrying through a lot of other areas of the business and making movies, and that's something that I'll probably end up doing more of. But I'm finding out what the job is right now. George Lucas had revisited his plans for a third trilogy in the time after first meeting with Bob Iger, when did these sequel ideas actually originate? The answer goes back farther than you or I may have imagined. During a press junket to promote the 2004 release of the Star Wars trilogy DVD box set, Actor Mark Hamill, who portrayed Luke Skywalker, shared some of the earliest conversations he had with Lucas about future Star Wars trilogies. Hamill said, He talked about doing a 7, 8, 9. You know, when I first did this, it was four trilogies, 12 movies, and out on the desert, any time between setups, lots of free time. And George was talking about this whole thing. I said to him, why are you starting with 4, 5, and 6? It's crazy. And he said, It's the most commercial section of the movie. He said the first trilogy is darker, more serious. And the impression I got, he said, Um, how would you like to be in episode 9? This is 1976. When is that going to be, I said. 2011, he said. I defy anyone to add 36 years to their lives and not be stunned. Even an eight-year-old is like, no, I'll I'll never be 47. So I did the math and figured out how old I'd be. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, you'll just be like a cameo. You'll be like Obi-Wan handing the lightsaber down to the next new hope. And I'm thinking, I love the guy. If he wanted me to do light yard work at his house, I'd be out clipping the hedges. So I went, sure. But I thought he just realized that he's not going to be doing it the rest of his life, and he'd rather not do that. This was supported by an on-air interview Hamill did back in 1983, where he first shared part of that story. So loyal to George, and I owe him so much. He at one time said, would you consider playing an Obi-Wan type character handing Excalibur down to the next generation? I said, when would that be? And at the time, he said,
2: around 2011. I thought, gee, as much as I'd like to have a job lined up at the turn of the century, I was figuring out how old I'd be at that point. And I thought, uh,
1: well, I don't know.
0: Lucas's plan for Star Wars had been to tell a multi-generational story about a family. The prequels told the story of Anakin and Padme. The original trilogy, Episodes 4, 5, and 6, highlighted Anakin's redemption through his children, Luke and Leia.
2: The first three movies had all kinds of issues. They looked at the stories and they said, we want to make something for the fans. So... I said, all I wanted to do was tell a story of what happened. You know, it started here and it went there. And it's all about generations and it's about, you know, the issues of fathers and sons and grandfathers. And it's a family soap opera. I mean, ultimately. I mean, space, we call it space opera, but it, people don't realize it's actually a soap opera. And it's all about family problems and that kind It's not about spaceships.
0: Episode 7 would kick off the era of the sequel trilogy, continuing the Star Wars epic decades after Return of the Jedi, and Lucas aimed to tell the story of Anakin's two grandchildren, whom he named Kira and Sam. He also wanted to bring back his beloved hero, Luke Skywalker, but present him as alone and in exile after being betrayed by a former student of the Force. Working with Toy Story 3's screenwriter Michael Arndt and Lawrence Kasdan, Lucas wanted to dive deeper into the mythology of the Force, showcasing an idea he first crafted in the 1970s as he wrote the first Star Wars script. He said he wanted to get into a microbiotic world in the sequels, telling the story of creatures he called the Wills, who were the essence of the Force and communicated through the midichlorians, an element he introduced in the prequels. It's fascinating to hear Lucas' intentions for a future Star Wars story. For one, he is the creator of that universe, who spoke lightsabers and Wookies into existence. And we know that when Lucas had an idea like the Microbiotic Force, even if it seems impossible to put on the big screen, he would find a way to do it. For Lucas, a sequel trilogy was not simply a vehicle to raise the value of a deal with Disney. It was a long gestating part to a story the Master desired to finish, to seemingly bring upon a redemption to a lost Luke by the grandchildren of Anakin Skywalker, to reveal the mysteries of the all-encompassing magical force, and to possibly end the Skywalker saga his way.
2: Well, no, no, it's your family. It's but bad story. It's your story. But in the end, but I knew there's three more stories. And I knew that was going to probably take, you know, to do it right would take about 10 years. And I said, I'm 70. I don't know whether I'll be here when I'm 80. You know, every 10 years, the odds get less. And uh, so I said, and I'm not ready to do that because I want to do these other things. So I have to make the decision on my own that it's time for me to move on.
0: On October 30th, 2012, George Lucas officially relinquished control of Star Wars, selling his Lucasfilm company to Disney for $4 billion in a cash and stock deal. Lucas and Disney CEO Bob Iger sat behind a desk, taking turns signing the agreement acknowledging the sale. The logos of both companies shone like a small billboard on a computer screen between them. Watching the moment on video... There's a quiet tension that reverberates around the room. I've watched the signing a number of times over the past decade, and it always made me uncomfortable. And I think it was due to a thundercloud of emotions taking place in that moment. Iger holding his breath as he waited for Lucas to finalize his side of the deal. Lucas feeling the true weight of his decision to sell as the final moments as Star Wars controller slipped through his fingers like particles of sand, and Iger's exhalation at the thought of finally adding one of the biggest trophies to his case during his tenure as CEO. In addition to acquiring Star Wars, Disney became the owner of the Indiana Jones franchise, A number of films that were currently in production, video game developer LucasArts, effects powerhouse Industrial Light & Magic, and audio company Skywalker Sound. Kathleen Kennedy would take over leadership duties as president of Lucasfilm, reporting to Disney chairman Alan Horn. And Lucas would remain involved with Star Wars, and was given the undefined role of creative consultant. During a chat released a week after the announcement of the deal, Lucas and Kennedy seemed to struggle with defining where Star Wars' original creator would fit into the newly acquired galaxy. And what do you see your role
2: as creative consultant? What does that mean? I just said that I would, I would back her up and I would be there if, uh, you know, and especially helping with the, with the script and making sure the script sort of, there's a lot of blank spots in the story treatment that hopefully we can fill in. And... I think the incredible thing about George is, you know, this is not like a series of books like Harry Potter where you've already got a template of what the stories right. might be. These are, these are original stories and original ideas that come out of a world that essentially is in George's head. So the beauty of the collaboration that can continue is as we work our way through these scripts, if we're sitting and saying, hmm, you know, I wonder if uh, if this character can do that, or does this make sense within the rules of Star Wars? That really, he's the keeper of the well, flame when it comes it's, to it's, that. It's, it's the same thing with the first three films. That's all my job is, is to be the keeper of the flame. The October
0: 30th announcement immediately sent shockwaves across the media landscape. But as momentous as that deal was for the industry the news that breathlessly grabbed headlines around the world was Disney's intention to put the long-dormant franchise back on the big screen. The last live-action Star Wars film had been 2005's Revenge of the Sith, which marked the end of the prequel trilogy. And during Disney's conference call detailing the deal, Iger announced plans to make the sequel trilogy, beginning with Episode Seven with plans for a 2015 premiere. And Disney aimed to release a new Star Wars film every two to three years, even after the conclusion of its proposed trilogy. Star Wars, which had birthed some of the most beloved and revered films of all time, was no longer a fading franchise whose best years had passed. In a flash, it was called out from the grave, rolling the stone away, striding into the present with its eyes on the future. The possibilities were endless. The technology to tell these stories on screen was boundless. And the fans were ecstatic. The Jedi would return. The Empire would strike back. And Star Wars was alive. Hurricane Sandy crashing on shore, winds now at 90 miles per hour, and this storm is so big, so vast, 60 million Americans will feel its power. The week around the announcement is one I'll never forget. The entire eastern seaboard was ravaged by Hurricane Sandy, which raged through Jamaica and then began a wave of destruction from Florida up to Maine. The hurricane left its mark across the country, with the damages totaling more than $65 billion. Floodwaters turned New York City's subway system into an aquarium. Beachfront homes along the coast were destroyed, and piers and amusement attractions were carried out into the sea. Many states declared a state of emergency as winds and flooding brought down trees and left thousands without heat and power. That week, my family and I were without power for a number of days. During the peak of the storm, I stayed up for most of the night, basically on watch. The wind and rain hit our house with such force, I thought the windows would surely shatter and the walls would cave. My sister and her family stayed with us and slept on couches in various rooms and in the midst of what had been a challenging and sometimes terrifying week, the announcement of a new era of Star Wars was a spark of hope. I went to bed at night in the silence of a darkened and rain-soaked neighborhood with the vibrant and joyful images of what a seventh Star Wars film could offer. My imagination wrapped itself around the potential of the next Star Wars story, And it was a welcome distraction from the real-world events my family and millions of other families experienced. It may sound cliched now, but Star Wars has always carried hope in its single-gloved hands. Its values of goodness and family and the power of friendship helped guide us as children and continued to be a light in our lives as we ventured into adulthood. It challenged us to think bigger and deeper, and to stretch beyond the current limits of technology and of our imaginations. George Lucas built the sandbox, but he invited all of us to play in it, to fashion lightsabers out of cardboard wrapping paper rolls and cloaks out of bedsheets and towels. And to step confidently into a world unlike anything we'd seen previously. And a new slate of films would give fans a chance to return to the galaxy they love so dearly. And a new generation of fans would experience the excitement only a Star Wars story could deliver. The fate of the galaxy was now in Disney's hands. When you wish... Upon a Death Star. During the conference call, Disney confirmed plans to expand Star Wars reach beyond the films. The intent was to integrate the property into any potential medium, as video games, in series across the television landscape, and within attractions at many of the Disney parks. And while the announcement reignited excitement among Star Wars fans anticipating seeing the next chapter play out in theaters across the globe, some expressed trepidation over Disney taking total ownership. The fear was losing the franchise to the dark side, that is, to have it become too corporate, where the essence of Star Wars would be watered down as the focus shifted to capitalizing on merchandising the brand instead. However, Disney's largely hands-off approach to the Marvel films beginning in 2009 offered hope that the company would let Lucas and his team finish the story he created, as he wanted to tell it, and without interference. That any new Star Wars story would align with Lucas' original vision for it. That whomever was chosen to helm future films and series would have the freedom to think big, as Lucas once did. And still there were some who did not want to see another Star Wars film, regardless of who was in charge of Lucasfilm. For many fans of the original trilogy, the prequels were a disappointment in both quality and in storytelling, and that frustration with the franchise caused many to shift their fandom to other sci-fi and fantasy stories, or to limit what they considered true Star Wars content to Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi. If Disney was to use Lucas's ideas for the sequel trilogy, would the films be hampered by the same shortcomings of the prequels? Could the fandom handle another round of on-screen letdowns? And if Disney chose to leave Lucas's direction behind and forge its own path, would that benefit the experience or hinder the overall story? Yet it must be said, Star Wars' shining light is that it is a story of family one that spans generations. And what happens in a galaxy far, far away can have an immense effect on movie-going families here on Earth. Audiences that witnessed the magic of the originals and prequels in theaters were now at the age in which they were parents themselves. The Disney deal would deliver a new trilogy for fans to share with their children and to see the films together for the first time. Those who were introduced to Star Wars through the Clone Wars series would now have a trilogy of their own. If Disney were to be successful with its rollout of new Star Wars content, the experiences and synergies would be endless. Bringing Star Wars characters and worlds to the parks could match or surpass what Harry Potter did for Universal Studios in Orlando, stoking a fan base and giving them another place to spend their money. The video games could bring both familiar and previously unexplored worlds into players' homes. Gamers could reunite with beloved characters in prequel or sequel stories, or the video games could act as testing sites for all new franchises, ones that could eventually make their way onto movie screens. And of course, toys and merchandise could be created for any of these pursuits, building a brand loyalty and a further connection with the content. As I always say, collectibles are tangible souvenirs of intangible moments, and if the new stories were to resonate with multiple generations, Disney's return on its $4 billion investment could be profitable for the media conglomerate for decades. Upon Disney's announcement, some media figures and those who were connected to Star Wars shared their thoughts about the acquisition. New York Times columnist Dave Itzkoff accurately captured the unease that came from Disney snatching yet another pop culture property. On the day of the announcement, he wrote, This is just like that scene in Star Wars when the Empire gets bought out by an even bigger empire. Entertainment Weekly asked Timothy Zahn, author of the beloved 1990s Heir to the Empire trilogy, which direction he'd like to see the new films take. Zahn said, I'd like to see the original characters in perhaps smaller roles, handing the mantle of adventure to the next generation. Luke would be like Obi-Wan, but not quite the same because he will have raised his children, and Obi-Wan was more standing off, watching and protecting. I'd love to see a good father-son, or mother-son, or daughter-story. I'd like to see family. We haven't seen a lot of good family stuff in Star Wars. A lot of it has been dysfunctional and driven by somebody else. Anakin was a slave and manipulated all his life. Luke and Leia never knew each other. Film critic Leonard Maltin sounded cautiously optimistic when discussing both the potential and pressure of a new Star Wars story. He said, It's a blank page right now. We don't just know. When the first movie came out, no one had any faith in it. Fox gave back the merchandising rights to Lucas. No one saw it coming. Now, you have the exact opposite situation. Expectations and demand are so high, they have a lot to live up to. The fault lines between Lucas's view of the future and Disney's vision for the newly purchased franchise shifted quickly. Ahead of the deal, and according to Kathleen Kennedy, Lucas reached out to some of the original Star Wars leads, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, and Harrison Ford, regarding a potential on-screen return for the sequels. But Lucas's involvement with the trilogy was cut short during development. At one of the earliest meetings for Episode 7, the team revealed they were moving the story in a different direction, to Lucas's utter shock. In his memoir, Disney CEO Bob Iger recounted that meeting, saying, George immediately got upset as they began to describe the plot, and it dawned on him that we weren't using one of the stories he submitted during the negotiations. The truth was, Kathy... J.J. Abrams, Alan Horn, and I had discussed the direction in which the saga should go, and we all agreed that it wasn't what George had outlined. George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we'd follow them, and he was disappointed that his story was being discarded. I'd been so careful since our first conversation not to mislead him in any way, and I didn't think I had now but I could have handled it better. I should have prepared him for the meeting with JJ and Michael and told him about our conversations, that we felt it was better to go in another direction. I could have talked through this with him and possibly avoided angering him by not surprising him. Now, in the first meeting with him about the future of Star Wars, George felt betrayed. And while this whole process would never have been easy for him, we'd gotten off to an unnecessarily rocky start. Shortly after that meeting, Lucas stepped away from his role as creative consultant. Years later, during a director's talks panel hosted by Stephen Colbert at the Tribeca Film Festival, Lucas shared his thoughts on the split and on the upcoming seventh film, saying, "'The original saga was about the father, the children, and the grandchildren. I don't think that's a secret to anybody.' That's in the novels, and the children were in their 20s and everything. But they've taken it in a different direction, and I'm excited. They didn't use my story, so I don't know what they're doing. In December of 2012, the Federal Trade Commission announced it found no issues with Disney's pursuit of Lucasfilm, and that the deal could move forward. Less than three weeks later, Disney officially owned Star Wars, and everything that came with George Lucas's former company. In the press release, Bob Iger stated, We're thrilled to welcome Lucasfilm to the Disney family. Star Wars is one of the greatest family entertainment franchises of all time, and this transaction combines that world-class content with Disney's unique and unparalleled creativity across multiple platforms, businesses, and markets, which we believe will generate growth as well as significant long-term value. Lucas released an announcement of his own. In it, a spokesperson for Lucasfilm spoke of Lucas's desire to donate the majority of the money received from the deal. He had planned to put the proceeds into his philanthropic endeavors, in a foundation focused on educational issues. Some media websites have speculated on the true value of the deal. Depending on how the money was invested over the years, and given the rise in Disney's stock price, it is possible that Lucas's parting with his company could have earned him as much as $10 billion. For Lucas, however, it was never about the money. The filmmaker wanted his creation to live on, long after he was gone. He said, I felt that I had really wanted to put the company somewhere in a larger entity, which could protect it. Disney is a huge corporation. They have all kinds of capabilities and facilities so that there's a lot of strength that is gained by this. I'm doing this so that the films will have a longer life and so that more fans and people can enjoy them in the future. It's a very big universe I've created and there are a lot of stories that are sitting in there. And that is the story behind how George Lucas sold the Star Wars franchise he created 35 years earlier, and how Disney acquired the Lucasfilm company. And for Iger and the Lucasfilm team, they were on a new path, and without an Obi-Wan to guide them. Episode 7, the first Star Wars film of the sequel era, was still a largely blank canvas. Breaking the story and drafting a script turned out to be a daunting task but J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan were up for the challenge. Adding to the pressure was the fact that the fate of the galaxy, the Star Wars galaxy, rested upon the shoulders of the film. During a lunch meeting one afternoon, Iger explained the true gravity of the stakes to Abrams. He described the film to Abrams, half-jokingly, as a $4 billion movie, referencing the price Disney had paid for the entire franchise. Speaking with the industry publication Variety, Iger emphasized the importance of both the film and the mantle Disney carried, saying, We need to treat this very special. It's an unbelievable privilege and unbelievable responsibility to take a jewel and treat it in a way that is respectful of its past, but brings it into its future. And the challenge that awaited them was only the beginning of the decade of Star Wars under Disney. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's hard to believe that a decade has passed since George Lucas left the company he created and sold it to the Walt Disney Company. There now exists a generation of fans who only know Star Wars as a Disney-owned property, which is just as surprising as the deal itself. Leading up to the 10th anniversary, I decided to explore the story behind the deal, as I thought it would be a great topic for this podcast. But I wanted to better understand how and why Lucas finally let go of the once-in-a-lifetime franchise, and how Disney acquired it. And what I learned from my research was fascinating. I love the quote in the clip of Mark Hamill talking about how George Lucas approached him about doing the sequel trilogy back in 1976. And as someone who grew up on Lucas's Star Wars stories, it was nice to know that his ultimate reason for selling Lucasfilm was to protect the property he loved and to have it continue for generations. This episode was one of my favorites to produce. I was able to release it on the official 10th anniversary of the deal, down to the day, which I thought would be a nice way to acknowledge it, since it has affected Star Wars fans of all ages, all around the world. The podcast has delivered many blessings since I started it a few years ago, and today is one of those days. If you enjoyed this look at Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm, and if the podcast has joined the ranks of becoming one of your favorites, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. By doing so, you have the power to share this podcast with others, and you never know the impact a simple review may have on someone else's life. I've listened to other podcasts based on a great review I've read, and a lot of the ones I've tried are now among my favorites today. I'm planning on continuing the Decade of Star Wars Under Disney series throughout the coming year, covering the unique moments that affected the franchise in memorable ways. And I have some really special Collector's-themed episodes coming up over the next few weeks, and I think you'll love them. And I'll continue reporting about an all-new decade as it unfolds on Star Wars Prototypes and Production.